good morning. Uh, and thanks, Ellen, and the music team uh, for your encouragement through, through song this morning. I really appreciated those songs and uh, the encouragement that you brought through them. I feel like uh, the last couple of times I've been preaching, I've been bringing some pretty tough stuff from Jesus <laughs> for everyone uh, through, through what he says to the churches in Revelation. And uh, we have some, uh, some teaching from him again this morning to digest. And uh, sometimes um, we hear those demands. It's good also to know that they come in love from our Lord who has died for us and cares for us so much. So thank you uh, to the music team. Let's just pray again uh, as we uh, begin this morning. Uh, Father, we want to, to hear again from you. We want you to touch our hearts with the words that we, that we consider this morning. Uh, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit amongst us and uh, in our hearts, opening our eyes, helping us to understand what we need to hear and to see what we need to believe, how we need to respond to what you'd bring to us this morning from the scriptures. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke 14 this morning. And so you may want to begin uh, turning there now uh, in your Bible or on your phone if you really must. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just begin by telling you about a Chinese man who I met several years ago. He was in New Zealand for a year on business, and I don't want to say too much more about who he is. I wouldn't want to cause any trouble for him. Uh, but anyway, when I met him uh, in New Zealand, he told me he was interested to learn more about religion while he was here in New Zealand for that year, and in particular, he wanted to investigate Christianity, which is something that's uh, rather more difficult to do in China uh, than it is here in New Zealand. And so we ended up uh, taking a year to read through the Gospel of Mark together. We met every week uh, in a coffee shop and just started reading through the Gospel and discussing it. And by the end of, the, of a year doing that, he understood the Christian message quite well, and he was drawn to Christianity. He was drawn to Jesus. And so as the time came for him to return to China, I, I pressed on him the question of whether he would commit himself to follow Jesus and be baptized as a Christian. And I know it was something that he was weighing carefully. We discussed it together. Uh, but it was a tough decision. In his line of work, he was required to be a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Basically, you had to sign up that and it's a difficult thing to be a Christian in China but it's particularly difficult if you're also required to be a member of the Communist Party really uh, those two things don't mix and it's not acceptable to be a Christian if you're a party member and so being a Christian could cost him his job or worse uh, if that became known in China and he has a wife and daughter to think about and so basically he knew if he became a Christian and he was baptized into the faith, his life would become difficult. And when he left New Zealand shortly after, he was still undecided about what he should do. He needed to decide uh, if he was willing to pay the cost of following Jesus or not. 
And that may be a question that some of you here this morning are thinking through and considering. What is it going to cost me if I become a Christian? Uh, And am I willing to pay that price? And actually, it's a question that all of us have to keep asking as we walk on through the Christian life. You know, new challenges arise to our commitments uh, as 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 the years pass. And we need to ask ourselves again, am I willing uh, to keep paying the cost? Will I, will I meet the cost of being a follower of Jesus? Uh, and that's, that kind of question is exactly the, the issue that's being addressed by Jesus in the passage that we'll be reading uh, this morning. We're going to be looking uh, at Luke uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 25 to 35. So please let's read those together. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile that is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Last week we were reading in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel as we began this Lent series together, On the Road with Jesus. In chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and he resolutely set out for that place where he was going to endure the cross and die. He set his face toward Jerusalem, and he begins to walk. And as Jesus is walking on the road to Jerusalem, people begin to follow. And a crowd begins to form around him uh, as he goes, as he teaches, as he heals And by the time that uh, the story reaches Luke 12, uh, we read in in chapter 12, verse 1, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So presumably, we can imagine there's a similarly large crowd uh, gathered around Jesus as we come to the passage we've been reading in chapter 14, when it says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. 
there's a huge number, thousands of people around Jesus on the road, pushing and trampling and milling around, great disheveled army on the road with Jesus, heading to Jerusalem. And this crowd is not completely uniform. Of course, there's different kinds of people uh, there. And within the crowd, there is traveling with Jesus a distinct group, a subset of that wider crowd, and they are uh, the disciples. And so, for instance, in chapter 12 and verse 41, Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and Peter interjects to ask, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, meaning just the disciples, or for all, you know, all these people here? There's a bit of a distinction. And so, in truth, there are two groups that are following Jesus that make up this mass of humanity. There's the disciples, and there's a wider crowd who are accompanying them and following along. What is a disciple? Well, the word simply means a student, a pupil, but in the New Testament, it's the normal word used for a Christian. And if you haven't looked into this before, you might be surprised to realize uh, that the word Christian is only used three times in the whole Bible. And that's because it was a label that outsiders used for the followers of Jesus. It was a name that was put on to the followers of Jesus by others. It wasn't the way that they referred to themselves. And the normal name that a follower of Jesus used for themselves was disciple. Uh, less commonly in the New Testament, you find believer or saint as other names for a follower of Jesus. But most commonly, they refer to themselves as disciples. And so... Uh, according to the New Testament usage of the word, a disciple is a Christian. Every Christian is a disciple. They're interchangeable terms. So we read, for instance, in the book of Acts, that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. It just means the same thing. And so without taking too many liberties, we can say that here with Jesus on the road, there was the crowd and there were the Christians. But I imagine that if you were there, I mean, they, I don't think the disciples were dressed differently. I don't think they marched in formation. I don't think it would be easy to distinguish who was who. And in fact, there are probably a large number of people who are walking along uh, who weren't Christian, who weren't followers of Jesus, but they imagined that they were. I wonder what it would be like if you were there and perhaps you'd been charged with taking a bit of a census. You were asking people about their religious affiliation and going amongst the crowd and making sure they'd filled in their forms and you managed to catch someone's eye. Excuse me, sir, are you crowd or Christian? Well, I'm following Jesus, aren't I? Of course I'm a Christian. Excuse me, madam, you crowd or Christian? Oh, well, I find Jesus so entertaining. His stories are great. Certainly I'm a Christian. Excuse me. Excuse me. You crowd or Christian? Well, I'm pretty sure he's going to drive out these damnable Romans, right, and lower my tax bill. Doesn't that make me a Christian? You know, there have been a lot of people who considered that they were part of the in crowd. They were there as Christians, and really they were just crowd. They thought they were actors in the Christian life, but really, they're extras. 
And Jesus looks at this crowd, and in his compassion for them, he wants to shake them up. He wants to rattle them out of that complacency that he sees there. And so in the severest terms, he tells them uh, what it takes to be a disciple. And this is what we read in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus wants the people there to know that discipleship is demanding. He says, you can't be my disciple. You can't be Christian if you don't hate those things most dear to you, your family relationships, even your own life. Now that can seem confusing. You might have heard somewhere that Christians are meant to love people, not hate them. I think Jesus is using a particular way of speaking here that we find sometimes, occasionally in the Old Testament, uh, a presumably a, a Hebrew way of talking. Uh, for instance, uh, in Genesis 29, uh, we have the story of Jacob and his two rival wives, Rachel and Leah, and it says there, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And in one sense, Jacob loved both his wives, though he loved Rachel more. But the love he had for Leah could be described as hate relative to the love that he had for Rachel. That's just an example of that kind of usage in the Bible. And I think what Jesus is saying is, similarly, if you uh, are to be a disciple, then the love that you have for Jesus has to burn brighter than any other love in your life. We sang uh, uh, earlier today, nothing is better than you, Lord. That has to be the heart attitude of someone who's following after Jesus. I've talked before here, I know I have, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a German church leader uh, uh, in Germany uh, during the Second World War, and he was executed for his opposition to the regime there. He died as a Christian and as a Christian leader. And prior to his death, some years earlier, he'd written a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, commenting on this particular verse, he says, at the very moment of their call, men find that they've already broken with all the natural ties of life. This is not their own doing, but his who calls them. For Christ has delivered them from immediacy with the world and brought them into immediacy with himself. And there's a lot to think about in there, uh, but what he's saying, I think, is that when you uh, turn to faith in Jesus, you're drawn into what he calls immediacy, into intimacy with Jesus, and intimacy with the world fades away uh, in comparison. And Jesus is absolutely the first priority for the disciple or for the Christian. Now, my wife Jo has a very special place in my life. I wouldn't like to say that I love her more than my parents or my children, but let's just say she's in the running. 
We were married at 25. Uh, well, uh, I was 25 uh, when we were youth leaders here in Cambridge. And I was uh, very much in love. I remember thinking through at the time whether it was right for us to be married. And it was a very clear uh, principle that I had in mind that marriage is only legitimate if it allows both of us to serve God better. If getting married was going to detract either me or Joe uh, from serving God, then, then we should decline to be married. And that was a principle that uh, I had in mind at the time. If I want to be a disciple, my commitment to Jesus is meant to far outstrip my commitment to my wife, believe it or not. And if for some strange reason I had to choose, then it has to be Jesus. I've never encountered that. I don't expect to encounter it. But Jesus comes first. And being a disciple is all in. I'm immediate, I'm intimate with Jesus first and foremost. Nothing is better than him. Well, it sounds quite unreasonable, doesn't it? I mean, it's very black and white. Why does Jesus have to be like this? I mean, can't I just play socially as a Christian? Why does it have to be so intense? Well, we get a kind of an answer uh, in the next verse. This is what Jesus says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, we'd best be aware that he carried a cross. Right? It's a defining aspect of his life. That's why he was sent from the Father. And because of love, uh, Jesus went to the cross and gave everything he could give, even his own life. Because of love for the world, uh, Jesus suffered the extremity of physical pain. He allowed himself to be subjected to shame and nakedness and mockery and spitting and every form of degradation. Out of love for you and for me, he died young after only a few years of public ministry that's the life of Jesus. Jesus carried a cross. And if we're his students, if we're his followers, if we are disciples and Christians, we are also expected to carry our cross in imitation of him. And that means we are called to love others until it hurts. We're called to love others sacrificially, to give ourselves up for one another. We need to be willing to suffer every kind of indignity and faithfulness to God's mission for us, we need to carry our cross. Again, Bonhoeffer, speaking on this verse, says, The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. And if that's what it means to follow Jesus, it's not for the faint-hearted, is it? It's all in. You've, it requires a deep commitment to follow Jesus and to imitate his path in life. In verse uh, 33, uh, Jesus gives a succinct kind of a summary of what he is expecting from a disciple. He says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
To be a disciple, everything we possess, everything we are, needs to be renounced and laid aside. It's costly. Now, this would come as a surprise, I think, to many people who are part of the crowd on that day. Maybe even to some of Jesus' closest companions, this would have come as a shock. They thought they were marching to empire and to glorious victory and to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And they weren't wrong, uh, but God's kingdom would come in a very unexpected way, and followers of Jesus needed to be prepared for that. And these people on the road with Jesus, they thought they were on the side of riches and honor and power and long life. And following Jesus is a path to blessing, but not in the way that the crowd imagined. That was the case for them. It can be the case for us also as we gather here as a big crowd this morning. We might come with all sorts of expectations about God, what God will do for us as we gather here. Uh, and it can be easy to think, well, if I just hold my tongue right and tithe and pray my prayers, I've got a right to health and a good business and a happy marriage and all of those things from God. And as we step into church, Jesus wants to remind us from this passage that discipleship is a path of renunciation and suffering and cross-bearing and commitment. And Jesus asks us here this morning to decide, are we prepared to be Christian or are we happy to just be part of the crowd? That's a decision that Jesus puts before each of us. He asks us, are you crowd or are you Christian? Are you willing to meet the rigors of a life following Jesus, or are you happy with some kind of playground religion? And that's a decision each of us has to make. Jesus demands it of us. Jesus tells two stories while he's talking, describing what it's like uh, to make that decision. And first, he tells a story about building a tower. In verse 28, we read, which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? We don't know exactly what kind of a tower this is that Jesus has in mind. One likely possibility might be a tower to guard a vineyard. That was a common enough sight in those times. They're out in the countryside walking along the road. Maybe there's one or two towers they can see from where Jesus is speaking. And these kind of vineyard towers are mentioned in other places in the Gospels. Maybe that's a possibility. This tower is a significant capital investment. That's the whole point. It's going to be very costly. And if the builder doesn't do the sums right, it could be ruinous. I suspect we, we probably have some farmers or horticulturalists here this morning. I haven't really done a head count, but, you know, if you've done your cap money course, you know. You've got to look at your incomings and your outgoings and your savings and, and make up your budget and draw up a spreadsheet and do all of that kind of stuff before you commit to these kind of big investments. Otherwise, you might be left with a useless and an expensive eyesore. Or as Jesus puts it, this person who begins to build and can't finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And the lesson for us is pretty simple. 
Jesus is saying, you've got to know what you're getting into when you commit to discipleship, when you commit to being a Christian, you've got to be willing uh, to pay the cost, otherwise you might not last the distance. And then Jesus tells another story uh, that deepens uh, the lesson for us about a king going to war with another king. This is what we read in verse 31. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So there's a king. He has to calculate very carefully as he's entering the battlefield with his 10,000 troops. Is, is he able to confront and win a battle with this other king who has 20,000? Now, if Jesus just finished the story there, it wouldn't tell us really anything more than the story of the tower. It would just mean before you become a Christian, you need to think about it and figure out whether you're willing to pay the cost of being a Christian. But this story does have a twist to it. This is what we read in verse 32. If not, if this king can't win the battle, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So in this story, actually, Someone does some thinking and they decide the cost of war is too high. They're not going to pay. The wise decision is to sue for peace. And I believe we're probably meant to understand the story something like this. You know, King Jesus, he's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what he promises in Luke 21. And when King Jesus comes, are we going to fight him or do we sue for peace? You should consider carefully the cost of going to war against God. And the prudent course of action, naturally, uh, is to surrender and to make peace with God. And if I do that with King Jesus, that means everything I have, everything I am is given over to the king. He's the new owner of me and everything I have. Now that doesn't mean, or doesn't mean when I renounce everything and surrender it to him, that I necessarily lose the use of my house or, or that I, I shouldn't enjoy my wife and our relationship. Now, it could be that my king demands, me, uh, demands that of me, but it's, it's not necessarily the case. But however things might be for me, uh, with the things that are mine, uh, everything now actually belongs to Jesus. It's surrendered to him. I renounce it. He owns it. We strike for terms of peace uh, with the Lord. And so this first story tells us uh, that when we're deciding to follow Jesus, it's wise to count the cost. Uh, the second story tells us that having counted the cost, it's wise to follow Jesus. The alternatives are not good. It's a pretty intense lesson that Jesus has for the crowd, isn't it? He leaves it there, aside from pointing out that uh, salt that loses its zing is a bit useless. I wonder what kind of questions people had when they heard that. 
pretty confronting. I think there's a couple of questions that might suggest themselves to you uh, as you're reading uh, these things and as we're talking them through this morning. Uh, first question that perhaps you'd be asking yourself is, um, well, it sounds really hard. I mean, is this even possible? It doesn't even sound human to be able to live this way. And the second question you might ask yourself, is it worth it? I mean, Jesus is asking a lot. I think those would be pretty natural questions to ask if you were listening to Jesus then. Pretty natural to ask them as, you, as we're sitting here now. Jesus doesn't answer them. He's there to shake people up. He wants to, to awaken people from the slumber that they're in as they're following him. And he doesn't answer those questions. Uh, but interestingly, a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, we find the disciples asking exactly those questions. And so I don't want to take a long time over this, but just briefly, uh, let's just take some time to see how Jesus might respond to those questions that will arise for us. So in Luke uh, 18, uh, we find that Jesus uh, challenges uh, a rich man to give away his wealth and to follow him. Well-known story. Now that's a tough call uh, for this extremely rich person and so as they are reacting in a rather dismayed fashion, uh, Jesus says in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is tough. This is pretty impossible, actually. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Jesus, this is a good guy, respectable guy. If he can't be saved, who can be saved? This is impossible. And that Jesus replies uh, this way in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. One thing that I find interesting about those Bonhoeffer quotes that I I've put up in this sermon is that he says it's, it's Jesus that calls you away from, from the world and from those other relationships. It's God that lays the cross on you. You know, that's God's work saving you and, and making you a Christian and bringing you into the family of God. That's God's work. And what is impossible with you and with me is possible uh, with God. If we commit to following Jesus, God is with us. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit. He will teach us. He gives us grace. We have to trust the promise of God that although we are weak, He is strong. We rest in Him uh, as we turn to Him. Yes, it's impossible. But what is impossible with a man or with a woman is possible with God. Peter responds in verse 28, and he says, See, we've left our homes. And followed you. Okay, this guy didn't do it. We have. And the implied question is, so what's in it for us? After we've done all this, is it going to be worth it? And Jesus' response in verse 29 is this. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more 
in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. You know, Jesus says it will be worth it, actually both now as well as uh, in eternity, many times over. We have to trust that promise. Now, as I say, I don't want to spend long on this. Uh, perhaps these are things to discuss on another occasion. Uh, but I just wanted to briefly canvas some answers to those questions that you might have uh, this morning. I still don't know if my Chinese friend, having counted the cost, took up his cross. I've lost contact with him as he's gone back to China. And sometimes I wonder how his life is going and what he's decided. But I have another friend who inspires me, and I know that he's counted the cost, and uh, he's decided to follow Jesus, renouncing all he has. And I won't give his name either, just because I think he would be embarrassed if I mentioned his name. But this person is a, a missionary doing Bible translation in remote areas of the Philippines, uh, living in what we might call uncivilized uh, kind of mountain areas. And as a young man, this person was set to inherit a large agricultural business involved in the grain industry here in, in New Zealand. It was a profitable business. It was also something that he enjoyed doing. It involved driving combine harvesters and stuff like that that he likes doing for whatever reason. And it was a good life that he had to look forward to, but he was convinced his life for Jesus would be more fruitful uh, if he took another direction. It wasn't something that came to him in a dream or a vision or some kind of supernatural uh, manifestation. He just calculated the, the way he could be most useful to God and decided he should be a missionary. And so at the age of 22, he went to the Philippines as a missionary uh, with his wife, uh, and they've now been on the field for uh, 33 years. And life is hard for them there. Uh, he and his wife live in a wooden thing that we might call a shack, I suppose. There's limited electricity. There's occasional snakes. And in preparing for this morning, I got in touch with him, and I asked him, uh, what do you find the hardest thing? I mean, he's told me before life is hard. Uh, we've talked about that. I asked him, what, what do you find the hardest about where you are? And he mentioned several things. He said, uh, only being able to get in and out when the roads and the rivers are passable, he finds that quite hard. So a lot of the time he travels on a motorbike, but a lot of the time the roads and the fords and so on that he has to go through are just impossible to get through because of wet weather or mud and so on. And so a lot of the time he's isolated where he is. He said being there a long, long time but never quite becoming a local or a native, he finds that quite hard. He said it's disappointing the lack of new missionaries coming from New Zealand. That's disheartening. That's hard. Who's going to carry on doing that kind of work? Uh, but I guess for him and for his wife, the, the, the toughest thing is the separation from family. Right? Separation from their own children, from parents, from siblings uh, here in New Zealand is tough. And so this friend of mine is someone who, after a fashion, have followed after Jesus, hated family, suffered privation, renounced all he has for Jesus. 
I asked him while I was uh, talking to him, is it worth it? And his response was, of course. These are his words. If this thing we've bet our lives on is true, and it is, then it would be silly to factor those other struggles into the equation. We're uh, in the period of Lent at the moment. It's a time of, traditionally for, for the church, a time of repentance and confession of sin and renewal and uh, recommitment to God. And so I think it's very appropriate at this time that we ask ourselves again the question, am I Christian or am I crowd? And what do I want to be? Am I willing to pay the cost of being a disciple? It's a time uh, when each of us can renew our commitment to the Lord and say, yes, I want to be Christian. And so I want to just take a few moments in an attitude of silent prayer now. Okay, and I want each of us here to, to talk to God and just give Him your answer. Just say, you know, I'm willing. Maybe you're not. Maybe that's something you've got to wrestle through with God. But let's just take a few moments. It's time when maybe for the first time ever, you commit yourself to being a Christian and to following Jesus. Maybe it's something you've done many times before and you commit yourself again now. Let's just take a few moments in prayer before God in order to commit ourselves once again to that path. And then I'll finish in prayer. Father, hear our prayers now, we ask. We pray that you would empower and strengthen us for what you have for us. We pray that you would encourage us and fill us with joy on the journey. But just help us to renounce everything we have, surrender it to Jesus, give it over to him, to take up our cross, to walk in love. Teach us what that will mean for us. Work in us again, we pray, to once again start off down that path. Grow us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.